There's an expression that says the map is not the territory. It means that whatever symbol system you use to try and understand your world, the lines on a map, for example, or the awards given to somebody for drawing those lines, that symbol system can never really capture our everyday experience. The map will never take the place of the real world or the way we move through it. Maps are a way of categorizing our ability to find ourselves in the onrush of history. But they are not history itself. Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrin. When it comes to the arts, it's particularly fraught because the arts are themselves a kind of symbol system for understanding the life and times of an artist. In the case of the arts, the map can include musical notation, as well as awards, credits, reviews, and more. But none of that tells the whole story. Take, for example, Taishan Sori. He's an improvising drummer who is sought out by the likes of Vijay Iyer, John Zorn, Roscoe Mitchell, Bill Laswell, Lage Lund, Steve Coleman, Steve Lehman, and more to collaborate with them. But these are just points on the map, as is his winning a MacArthur Fellowship and being referred to in the New York Times as the composer of the year. As a band leader, Sori has released a steady output of work, from electronic to free improvisation, through composed pieces to revisionist standards, and he will have released two more solo projects by the end of this year. He's an educator who has lectured on composition and improvisation at Columbia, the New England Conservatory, University of Chicago, Harvard, and he's a professor of composition at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a black man who was raised in inner-city Newark, New Jersey, and who was kept in special education for much of his childhood, but who eventually found familiarity in the classical avant-garde and acceptance in some of the most prestigious institutions in America. These are all points on the map with his name on it, but they don't begin to capture the life and artistic territory of Taishan Sori, nor would he want them to. I once saw Sori performing with Lage Lund in a little club in the West Village. During a break in between songs, he looked at the sheet music for the next piece they were going to play. It was a multi-page chart with some changes of meter and some tricky arrangement elements. Musicians sometimes refer to charts like these as roadmaps. Taishan scanned the pages quickly, maybe for 30 seconds. Then he dropped the paper on the ground and proceeded to play the music from memory. He discarded the roadmap because Sori knows that the map is not the same thing as the territory. The music is what he's about. And his gift is too large to be contained by symbol systems. Earlier this year, he premiered his composition Monochromatic Light Afterlife at the Rothko Chapel in Houston. It was a fitting place to do it because he wrote it as a tribute, or maybe better put, as a conversation with the composer Morton Feldman's piece, Rothko Chapel. And then last week, as I speak to you now in early October 2022, Monochromatic Light was restaged in New York at the Park Avenue Armory. When I talked to him this summer, it was initially about his recent work, The Armory Show, and a run of shows with pianist Vijay Iyer and bassist Linda O. Oh. Plus, he had just released his album called Mesmerism, a trio recording with bassist Matt Brewer and pianist Aaron Deal. And his next record, called The Off-Off-Broadway Guide to Synergism, it's a three-disc set of live recordings captured at the Jazz Gallery, again with Aaron Deal, and this time with bassist Russell Hall and saxophonist Greg Osby, would be coming out later in the year. In fact, that comes out at the end of this month and you hear a track from it behind me right now. But quickly it became clear that, like he told me, it's not about any kind of hierarchy, but rather how do these different things keep me alive? That's the territory we wound up exploring. Remember, third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, 
and visit the archive too. Hundreds of conversations with improvisers and members of the creative class. WBGO.org studios is another important signpost on the roadmap of this project. And of course, Patreon.com slash Third Story Podcast is where you can pay the toll. Here's me and Tyshawn Sori talking it down. Dr. Sori. Leo, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good. Can't complain. <laughs> so first of all, I know you just got back from Europe and um, that you spent uh, a week or two in Italy and touring with Vijay Iyer and Linda O. Oh. How was that? How was it to be back in Europe? My honest opinion, um, in terms of traveling, first of all, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, I really dislike traveling um, a lot, especially like during this particular time, like during the pandemic. Everybody's getting out, you know, everyone's traveling, and I'm hearing horror story after horror story after horror story about you know, my colleagues, you know, musicians' bags getting lost and all of that kind of stuff, you know, people having their luggage get lost. Like, I had a good friend of mine, like, actually, Matt Brewer, who, mm-hmm. a great bass player, a friend of mine or whatever. Like, it took, like, I think they still have his luggage uh, claimed as lost, and it's been, like, well over two months uh, since he's had his luggage lost. So, for me, there was no way I was going to be checking any symbols or checking any you know, any of my instruments or whatever uh, for the luggage. So it was pretty hectic, you know, getting through with um, with three bags, you know, trying to travel, you know, with three bags, you know, from flight to flight. Um, so that wasn't very pleasant. And at the same time, um, you know, working with Vijay and Linda in any capacity um, is always a thrill and it's always a pleasure and it's always, you know, musically um, a wonderful situation, but as far as the logistics of traveling are concerned, currently at the moment, um, it's horrifying, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, to say the least. And as I said before, I think the fact that what has happened, you know, during this recent period of traveling, I also traveled with them in November, and it was actually even more of a headache, <clears throat> you know, traveling uh, during that um, during that particular time during the pandemic. First of all, we were gone for three weeks. And um, this trip was only about two weeks. But in November, we were gone for like for three weeks straight. And we had to get tested almost every for every country we've left. There was a lot of paperwork you'd had to do, um, you know, before you could even fly, (laughs) before you can even get on the airplane to travel to another country or something like that. And, you know, there would be instances where sometimes we would be traveling from country to country. And so you'd spend like, you know, a bit of time doing all of this paperwork and getting these QR codes to be scanned once you went through um, passport control and all of that stuff to make sure that people aren't, you know, carrying COVID with them and everything as as they're traveling. So you had to get tested. You had all kinds of stuff you had to do. So from a logistical standpoint, that was also a nightmare. But I almost feel like that this this tour was actually even worse just in terms of the amount of people who are out, um, the inconvenience that has been um, sort of foisted upon people, you know, who are traveling, you know, uh, by air, um, the incompetence on the part of certain mm-hmm. airlines. I won't name them, but, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a large degree of incompetence that is happening, you know, with these particular airlines and with people getting their baggage lost and all of that stuff. So 
I was determined not to go through that. And I mean, as I was traveling, I just did whatever the best I could do, you know, in terms of getting through the period. But, you know, to travel anywhere, I mean, you know, as I always say, I mean, you, you don't really get paid for the performance. You get paid to travel. That's, right. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's what touring involves. Because if you were getting paid for the performance and traveling, believe me, we'd be making a lot more money doing what we're doing here. I mean, I'm just being, I'm just being blunt and I'm just being honest about the situation. I mean, maybe, you know, there's a lot of people who really love to travel and who really love to do this. So I'm not knocking people who are well into that. I'm just, you know, it's just not really for me, you know, to be doing all the time. Anywhere with Vijay and Linda is always going to be well worth the experience because, you know, these two are just some of the most fantastic musicians and people that you could ever be around for any length of time, you know, so I tolerate it. (laughs) You know, I I, I tolerate the travel logistics and all of that kind of stuff. How do you look after yourself in those situations where your own personal time just to manage whatever you need to get managed for yourself is so limited, particularly in times of COVID where there's all this added layers of either getting tested or, or panicking at the airport or, you know, I mean, do you have any strategies that you've developed just for when you're out there to just make sure you don't completely spin out? Well, the name of the game is self-care. You know, one has to really uh, do everything they can to take care of themselves, including making sure the hotel is up to the standard that one is accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And also making sure that you're eating properly you're drinking lots of water you know you got to drink a lot of water when you're traveling i mean that's just a that's a given i mean because you know you just you're in the air for you know several hours at a time and then you're walking from place to place i mean you're sweating the weather's you know also hot which doesn't help um so you got all of that going on and um just making sure that you're you know, mentally, emotionally, and also physically, you know, at a place where, you know, you're going to be able to um, get through as much of these pitfalls as much as you can. And to also, you know, take some time out for yourself, too. I mean, like meeting, I know the tendency sometimes would be for certain musicians to want to go do some sightseeing and stuff like that. But there's really no time for that. You don't really have time for that. I mean, once you get off the plane, you're already exhausted from being up in the air for however many hours or so when you're going from country to country. I mean, it's just there's just so much time that's involved with trying to get somewhere. You know, I mean, when, when you're traveling by train also, it's the same it's the same issue. You know, you're spending a lot more time than what the travel time says you know, from where you're going from place to place. So you one has to really be aware of how much time they're actually spending, you know, doing all of the traveling that they're doing and then putting that against the time that they have to take care of themselves, whether it's taking a nap or having a decent meal somewhere or, you know, or maybe just, you know, just trying to find time to enjoy themselves and not get too caught up or whatever on logistics and that kind of thing because one has to um really look at it you know like touring or whatever like as an opportunity for one to you know like i said to play the music as best as possible in every situation give a 100 million percent of yourself to the music and also take care of yourself because you know if if you don't take proper care of yourself whether it's mentally or whatever then you're not really going to do all that well you know on the bandstand so the best thing i would say is to you know to definitely 
think of it as an opportunity for you to exercise some self-care and try to take some time off for yourself and not sit and do a bunch of emails or whatever or something like that like during a time where you could be getting some rest or you could be taking care of yourself Mm -hmm. because if all you're doing is work 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 all the time then you're not really going to have the mental capacity to really even continue for doing a gig if all you're thinking about is everything that's stressing you out you know for the day or something like that so that's all i have to say about that i know that was a long-winded response but whatever you can do to take care of yourself you know while you're on the road even if it means you know having to slow down your response times to emails mm-hmm. and phone calls and stuff like that or whatever even if it involves that then one should really do that if they want to uh perform at a successful capacity you know, this point that you make about al- allowing yourself to enjoy it and not necessarily focus on emails and work all the time, work, 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 it's interesting to hear it from you because, you know, from the outside, it, it really is almost impossible to imagine how you organize your life in order to be so prolific across disciplines. You know, I mean, I would imagine that life is work, work, work for you. It is, to the point where sometimes I feel like I really have to force the issue. Because it's it's just, you know, the, the calendar is not going to change, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, I have to I have to almost like really force the issue either, you know, upon myself and even, you know, talk to some of my business people and just say, look, like, I'm not going to be doing this kind of work during this period. Like, I'm not going to be sitting there trying to compose a new piece of music while I'm going from plane to plane to plane and from place to place to place. How is that even possible? I mean, first of all, you have sound checks and stuff. You have, you have, you know, you have to basically go, you know, pretty early before the gig. Then you have dinner after that, before you proceed to play the gig and then you play the gig and then you're still tired after you're done. So how is it, how is it going to be even possible to compose for, you know, in my case, you know, to sit and compose a piece of music and try to, you know, work my brain for hours, you know, for hours before I even do all of that. Like, I'm not even going to be at a capacity to do well in the performance or to even, you know, to do right by my trio mates, you know, or by my fellow band members. I mean, and it's not fair to them to, you know, put them in that situation where, you know, I'm not giving myself, I'm not giving 100% of myself into the music and everybody else is. I mean, that that's pointless to me. So that's, you know, that's pretty much a thing that I've had to establish or whatever over the years where I said, you know, I'm not writing any music at all unless I'm doing revisions or something like that, which doesn't take as much brain power or doesn't take as much brain work. Unless it's something like that, I'm not sitting down and writing any music for any period of time where I'm going to be on the road and traveling because I I have a job to do. I mean, I have a lot of people, you know, in these audiences to move. I mean, I have, you know, and I'm responsible for how successful the performances turn out in the end, you know, as much as my bandmates are. I mean, I have as much responsibility as they do, you know, to to move these crowds and to really get them, you know, get them to take something else other than, you know, the sounds that they've heard or whatever. Like, it's, it's to me, it's never about playing a gig. Like, I don't care about playing a gig, you know, <laughs> as it were. I mean, if I, if I were doing that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. You know, but, um, you know, for me, it's it's a lot more than just sitting down in a drum set and playing a bunch of sounds or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's really about an experience. Like, I want to give these listeners an experience, you know, that 
maybe they haven't had before, you know, or something like that. Or maybe that they have had before, but to give them a different perspective of that experience or whatever the case may be. But as, as I said before, I mean, if, if I don't have the capacity to be able to do that by the time I get to the bandstand, mm-hmm. then what I'm going to be doing is essentially not important at all. So, you know, like I said, having to put in again, that's another form of self-care mm-hmm. when you put these sort of moratoriums out there and letting people know that, look, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm touring, I'm traveling, I'm performing from country to country to country. And this is not going to be a time for me to sit and dedicate so much time to writing a piece of music while I'm in it. You, you can't, you, you can't do that. It's just, it's not going to be fair to yourself as a person who needs to take care of yourself. And it's not going to be fair to whatever band members you're working with. As your career as a composer, as an educator continues to expand, how do you figure out how much space to give to the drums, what the role of, of playing the drums is? Because it almost sounds like in order for you to Give yourself the time and the space to go out and play these gigs. I mean, I know you say it's not just a gig, but to just go and spend two weeks focused on the drums, you take so much time away from the other work that you're doing. How do you view that balance today? I don't see it that way at all. I mean, I see it as um, all of these things informing each other. Uh, whenever I'm performing at the drum set or whatever, if there's some idea that I hear or that I'm inspired by, by being around, you know, say for example, Vijay and Linda, like if, if they've played something that inspired me, or if we even have musical discussions that, you know, inspire me in some way, then I would, you know, take these things to note or take take these things into my head and consider it, you know, for whenever I'm writing music or whenever I'm thinking about music or that kind of thing. I mean, see, there's, there's always going to be um, time for me to think about music. Like I could think about music all day. Like I could talk about music all day long, but it doesn't mean I necessarily have to write it or do it every single waking moment of my life. Mm-hmm. For example, like Linda, while we were traveling, she was working on a um, composition for solo piano, and we would have like numerous conversations about certain solo piano pieces that she checked out and some of the challenges or whatever that she's facing in writing, you know, for solo piano. And we would have like these extended discussions, you know, about composition and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, but these, these things kind of keep me, keep me sort of musically going, you know, it keeps, keeps me going. And so I was thinking, oh, wait, well, maybe I should consider this also for my piece, or I could consider this for the next composition that I decide to write for the solo piano or whatever the case may be. So, you know, it's not really taking time away. It's just letting these conversations and letting these experiences inform my activities that I'm otherwise not doing and finding a way whenever I do get to these activities, I can then go back and revisit, you know, a lot of the conversations and a lot of the things that inspired me and integrate those somehow into my composition or anything. So it's not really a thing about taking, it's not really about having quote unquote time off or something like that, where I'm like completely um, disengaged with composition or disengaged with uh, things concerning teaching, even, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I'm learning all the time and you know, you can never stop learning at any given moment, you know, no matter what it is. So there is sort of a blurred distinction, but at the same time, this is how I typically like to think about it, you know, whereas like I'm always thinking about composition and I'm always thinking about uh, performance and teaching and finding ways that all of these things, you know, can influence one another. 
Yeah, I got the sense that just any sense of hierarchy or category in the way you approach what you do is not particularly useful to you. I mean, I don't mean to make a statement that you didn't make, but that's my perception of it is that over and over again, the idea of, oh, I'm a classical composer, or I'm a jazz musician, or I'm a this, or I'm a drummer, or I'm a trombone player, I'm, it, it's not particularly valuable in terms of the discourse to you, in terms of how, how you see yourself. That's exactly what it is. You're totally correct in that. And in fact, you put it so succinctly, <laughs> a lot more succinctly than I did, but that's essentially what it's about. You know, it's, it's not necessarily about having all these hierarchies, but rather how do these different things, you know, how do they drive one another and how do they keep me sort of alive, you know, artistically speaking, you know, like, because I mean, I like to feel that I'm always artistically alive, you know, even though I may not necessarily be at the drum set you know, six, seven hours a day or something like that. Like, I like to feel like I'm still somewhat practicing, you know, in my head or in my, you know, in my listening or whatever the case may be. I mean, like I said, like, you can never stop learning at any point, no matter what you do and no matter what discipline that you're engaged in, as long as these different disciplines influence and inspire each other in, in, in ways that you allow them to. But it does put you in a pretty unusual spot because you sort of belong in many places and also, you know, you're operating in a lot of worlds where a lot of the people that maybe you come into contact with define themselves as a thing or see themselves as being part of a specific discipline, you know? I see you as able to operate in a lot of spaces where the people that you're dealing with really see themselves as defined by being in that space, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, for me, like the, these boxes that we talk about, I mean, they, they don't exist. <laughs> you know, we, we make these boxes ourselves. Like, we, you know, when we, when we come into a situation, we decide that we decide that we want to be a certain thing and we decide that we want to do some certain things. I mean, in a certain way, what I'm doing is also, you know, you could also argue that, you know, I'm putting myself in a box also, you know, with, with this kind of activity. I mean, one could argue that as well, but at the same time, it's like, well, I mean, if one's limited idea of what a box is, you know, <laughs> if, if, if they can think of it in whatever way they want, I mean, that's up to them. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, these sort of ideas where, you know, I have to belong in one place just because I do it. I mean, that, that stuff, that doesn't exist for me. You know, the fact that I'm a black man who plays the drum set or whatever, like the fact that to some people that puts me in the category of a so-called jazz musician or a hip hop musician or whatever the case may be. I mean, it's like, I never bought into that. Like I never brought into that growing up and I still don't buy into it. You know, like just, just because I'm a black man sitting behind a drum set does not mean that I can't engage with serious composition in the way that I have or engage with the musics of other traditions other than my own. You know, it, it really does play into the idea of, first of all, the, the radical idea of blackness or whatever as uh, put forth to us in literature by, you know, geniuses such as Fred Moten in particular, who I'm thinking about when um, the black artist or the, the black musician or whatever is practicing an act of resistance, meaning that not necessarily allowing yourself to be put into these categories or to be put into these boxes. Mm -hmm. I like to think of myself as a person who operates in that way, uh, where, you know, these boxes do not exist, while at the same time I can still exercise my so-called blackness or whatever in the way that I feel necessary. I don't have to attribute myself to a limited notion of what that is, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that when you use the example of associations that people might make about you, you use the example of being a black man playing the drums, which is actually a more, much more common visual reference that we have in you know mainstream society than a black man holding a baton and conducting a classical uh, orchestra or a chamber orchestra or whatever. I mean, that's, I think, the space where you have been more subversive in a sense because it's so unusual for a black man to occupy that space. Yeah, I mean, it's like, but at the same time, the reason why it's unusual is because Western society and, and certain collective forces of Western culture have made the conditions such that we can't necessarily engage with these models, engage with these alternative models, like conducting or coming up with your own lexicon of gestures and things like that for musicians to interact with as exercised by people like Butch Morris, Anthony Braxton, and people like that. You know, I've seen so many alternative musical models that are centered on blackness and that are also centered sort of outside of that, where it celebrates more or less a world aesthetic or worldview of what music's potential is for people, for humanity. Um, you know, looking at so many of these examples of that, you know, growing up and still today, it makes it even more right for me to feel that this is where I belong. Like, I feel like, you know, I should be able to do this without any kind of judgment or without any kind of feeling that, well, this is unusual and you shouldn't be doing that. It's like, no, it's only unusual in the sense that society has made one feel that way, you know, that, you know, as a black man, you can't really engage with these traditions because they don't necessarily, quote unquote, belong to you. It's like, well, who owns music? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. You know, I don't want to dwell in this too much, even though I know it's a very strong part of your of what you go, what you're working on and dealing with. But I understand that there would be resistance, whether overt or implied from the establishment, let's say. But have you felt it from the other side, too? I mean, uh, a black guy from Newark who made maybe more sense in the environment that you came from to, okay, he's going to be a drummer, he's going to be a jazz musician in New York, he's going to be that. But then in terms of your identity, where you came from, then entering this other space, I mean, did you ever feel that maybe, as you say, that that was a space that was difficult for you to explain why you wanted to be in? Well, I was always kind of a loner, so I always felt that there was no opportunity for me to really explain anything to anyone. Um, because, And I purposely made life that way for myself because, first of all, I never subscribed to peer pressure or any sort of thing like that where, you know, the latest trends or something, you know, was what I had to listen to. Like, I listened to whatever I wanted, and I enjoyed, you know, whatever music I wanted to enjoy, no matter who made it, and no matter the genre of music or anything like that. I never really thought of music in those terms or whatever, ever since I was a kid, you know, growing up. I didn't necessarily think of genres until maybe I was about seven or eight years old or whatever, when I first, you know, experienced the idea of what a genre is, where you only listen to one type of music or you listen to two or three types of music, and then if something else doesn't sound like that, then you reject it. That was when I became aware of that ideal, and I never really bought into it, you know, just in the same way that, I mean, it's just a natural part of my being to just, you know, listen to things for what they are and not necessarily for what they must be according to what my experiences are. You know, growing up in an inner city neighborhood like Newark, where I would get a haircut, for example, and my barber would give me a stack of 45s to take home of all kinds of different artists, 
all of what I'm doing now is a logical extension of that. In the same way that my uncle has a record collection of all types of different music, you know, and uh, both of my uncles actually, uh, both on the paternal side and my uh, maternal side, uh, both of my uncles have a lot of records and that kind of thing. And so I would listen to a lot of different kinds of music. And, you know, and as long as I liked it, you know, it was fine. You know, I've listened to it and I would make recordings of this music and listen to it over and over and over again. And, you know, and um, come to fall in love with music in general, like not fall in love with jazz or fall in love with house music or fall in love with um, R&B or fall in love with classical music or whatever. Like I never thought in that way. And so coming up through, you know, coming of age, you know, as I was learning how to improvise in junior high school, that was when I really started to kind of break away from this peer pressure where, you know, everybody else was, you know, or mostly everybody else was really listening to hip hop. And that was it pretty much hip hop and R&B and stuff on the radio. But for me, I knew there was a lot more well beyond that, you know, that was out there for me to explore. I mean, I always knew that. So, um, like I said before, the boxes never did exist, even from since I was a kid or whatever, like these sort of social categorizations, being a black man in inner the city, you have to listen to hip hop and you have to listen to the latest things or whatever that are going on in that scene or whatever. I, yeah, I did do that, but I also listened to other things too outside of that because I think in order for one to grow, that person has to maintain a level of curiosity that is beyond their capacity or beyond their, um, you know, wherever geographically they're located or what have you or whatever. There's, you know, there's there's so much out there in the world. Why not explore as much of it as you can and learn from it? Did you have a sense early on that you were unusual and your relationship with music was unusual? It seems like you were kind of drawn to it. You found a piano, you started playing it. You, you know that as soon as you could bang on something that you did, obviously it was a very natural thing for you to do. But, you know, you, you answered that question by saying that you've always been a loner. Did you feel, even in those early days as a young boy, that you had some kind of a, a, a different relationship with that, with music or, or with the world even, than, than, your, than your peers did? I mean, I only came to that realization much later um, during my years in um, junior high school. Mind you, I was in special education for six years before I even entered junior high school. So that, but that's, 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 an, that's a separate conversation to be had at some other point. But, but say, but I say that because, um, that actually, you know, having those experiences, um, kind of told me that, you know, that I was different, you know, that, that I was different from a lot of the people who I came around, you know, during that time. And, um, I guess, you know, when I finally entered quote unquote regular school in junior high school, I did notice that my relationship to music and the, you know, my relationship to even practicing music was actually very different from, you know, a lot of my classmates or whatever, where, you know, was where a lot of my classmates saw it as sort of a thing where this is cool. This is, this is something to do, you know, during this period or whatever, like during sixth period, seventh period or eighth period or whatever it is, you know, in junior high school. Whereas for myself, I would like to spend hours beyond, you know, the eighth period of school to practice or to listen to music or to learn something. I would even spend my lunch periods. Like I wouldn't even really go to lunch. 
uh, with some of the other students or whatever. Whenever lunchtime would happen, I would go to the music room and see the teacher in there, and he would let me go into the practice room and practice during lunch or something like that. And even in the mornings, like I would get there very, very early in the mornings sometimes. My music teacher would be there 7 o'clock in the morning, 7, 7.30 in the morning, and he would be there shedding and, and, and practicing. I mean, he was a great improviser and a um, so-called jazz musician or whatever. Like, he was a really, really great uh, improviser. And he saw, he even found that unusual. It was like, what are you, you know, you're, you're like, you're 11, 12 years old or whatever. You're coming here at 7 o'clock in the morning and you're wanting to, you know, learn Charlie Parker tunes and <laughs> all this kind of stuff or whatever. Like, so... You know, those experiences in junior high really told me that, you know, maybe there is something different going on here. But you know what? I'm going to pursue this because this is something that interests me and I want to be some kind of musician now. I didn't necessarily think about doing it as a life's work until years later. But those experiences in, in junior high school were eminently fun and they were, you know, they were just really wonderful opportunities for me to get more familiar with the craft of music making and, and being able to improvise and interact with fellow musicians who are like-minded. And then as a result of that, I was recruited to various so-called jazz camps and arts institutes and a number of things like that or whatever in seventh and eighth grade, where a lot of these kids who would be recruited for these programs are like, uh, like in senior year of high school, like first year of college age or whatever. Here I am, this young, really young kid coming to these programs as a result of, you know, having that curiosity and really practicing and working hard to try to get to a point where I can at least play somewhat decently <laughs> in these situations. Do you think if it wasn't music, it would have been something else? Or do you think specifically the relationship with sound and music was the thing? I think that was the thing that found me, you know. Um, it wasn't something I found. It was something that I think found me and, and something that I felt, okay, well, if this is what it is, then, you know, this is something that I feel that I'm most at one with or whatever. But, I mean, it could be something else, but, you know, I mean, we could argue that, but at the same time, music was the thing for me that was what really kept me in my place, so to speak. I mean, it was either that or be out in the streets. Well, in, in fact, that's kind of where I'm going with that question. I mean, I think it sounds like in many ways music, I mean, maybe it's exaggerated to say it saved your life, but music was a way of surviving and thriving and excelling. And mu music took you places that you wouldn't have gone so easily otherwise. Yep. For me, that was the only way. You know, thanks to my grandmother, rest her soul, my father had a little bit to do with it and that he too, you know, was a drummer during his adolescent days, you know, a little bit. And um, so, I mean, it was, you know, I, I had people who really supported me, you know, people in my family and friends of the family who did support, you know, the idea that, you know, I was partaking in something that I, that, you know, that I felt close to, you know, and they, they all saw that and they all really encouraged that, you know, it, it was great to have that that kind of support system around. I saw you play a gig once years ago with Lage Lund and Sullivan Fortner at Cornelia Street. And memory is an unreliable witness. But I do remember you taking out, you know, in my mind, it's like a 20-page chart. It's probably four or five pages, whatever it was, and scan it and look at it and download it into your mind and toss the chart aside and play the tune. And you know, I had already heard about this photographic memory thing with you. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you think about it. That alone is like, you know, very, was a very shocking thing to see you do and then play it as music immediately, not be thinking about the page. What goes on in your head when you look at something like that, process it, and then memorize it? 
Well, I guess probably since then, my memory has is somewhat starting to slip as I'm advancing in age a little bit. Hmm. But um, but uh, what I will say about that, those experiences, is that whenever I look at a piece of music like that, first of all, I think of the structure of the music. You know, I'm, I'm hearing the music in my head as I'm scanning it. You know, I'm hearing what, you know, the sounds are and how the chord progressions and the overall structure or the overall form of the song and you know, thinking of the best way to treat that, you know, the best way to treat these structures and to treat these various um, aspects of that song. And I just try to play for the song, you know, as best as I can, you know, whenever I look over a situation, you know, sometimes mistakes happen, but hey, you know, that's being human. Uh, <laughs> so whenever I would look at a chart and kind of scan it or whatever, I try to think mostly about the bigger picture of what the composer is looking for out of me, you know, and what I have to bring to the table. And so Lage, you know, who's wonderful, I mean, he's a really, really great person and a really wonderful player and everything. I mean, he trusts me enough to be able to, you know, play music on that level and to be able to bring something to the music that is, I guess you one might say, you know, it's kind of my own thing to the music. I appreciate that, that he allows me to be able to do that and to not prescribe too much information for me to have to deal with in playing the music, you know. So I'm I'm thankful for his trust and for giving me the um giving me the freedom to be able to exercise the creativity that I have within me to perform the chart as best as I can, you know. And uh so whenever that happens, you know, no matter whose music it is, I try to take all of these things in consideration, structure dynamics, you know, how loud or how soft to play in certain places. The melody, you know, thinking about the melody of the song as I'm playing, thinking about the chord progressions, uh, thinking about how long it would take from to get from one part of the structure to another part of the structure, you know, etc. Or to, you know, how to accompany soloists differently, that kind of thing. Like these are the, these are the type of things that, you know, are ingrained in me and that I also, you know, really think about from song to song. This might be a way for us to move slowly to mesmerism, to your new record, because, you know, as you talk about form, I think one of the challenges, I imagine, as a musician who is asked to play a lot of original music, either your own or other people's original music, is that form has started to sort of explode in the last couple of generations of, I'll use your language, so-called jazz composition, so that... You know, whereas that you you used to traditionally maybe be able to rely on a handful of kind of common forms, right? 32, 12, 24, 32 with a tag. You know, you kind of know what's happening in term as a drummer, particularly in terms of what the form is likely to do. As more and more musicians have become composers of their own music, particularly as a drummer, you know, the expectation is you got to figure out all these different kinds of form. You just made this record, actually you made a record about a year ago, but it's just come out, uh, where you play, I don't even know how to use the language, it's not standards exactly, but you know, you include a couple of tunes that are more standard, I guess, in the repertoire, and then you introduce old songs into a newer context. But one of the things I think about when I think about what's happening there is that forms are different now. These are not all standard form tunes, right? These are songs that are kind of expanding the idea of what form is in a, in a repertoire band. 
Yes. So um, I guess the idea is, you know, a lot of my compositional sensibilities, you know, when I'm thinking in a composedly way, not only while performing, but also, you know, thinking about coming up with these roadmaps for these song forms. Um, this is something that, you know, that I've always thought about. You know, I've been doing this for a very long time, actually, uh, before I even put out this record, you know, and it, it, it's only now that basically the general public is becoming aware of my knowledge of these songs and these standards and things like that, you know, from the Great American Songbook. And putting together this music, I also thought of the musicians who I'm putting this together for. I mean, Aaron Deal and Matt Brewer, who are exceptional musicians beyond, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're really incredible musicians who have a capacity to deal with a lot of these extended forms and things like that or whatever. And I know that experience is true, especially from Matt, because Matt Brewer and I, we've worked together for over 20 years in a number of situations where uh, form was, you know, as you say, exploded. You know, people like Steve Lehman, for example, um, incredible alto saxophonist and composer. We both worked in his band for a long time. You mentioned Lage earlier, Lage Lund. Um, and a lot of more so-called, you know, modern jazz musicians who deal with form in these very interesting ways um, that are outside of the canonical 32-bar standard sort of form or whatever. Like, you know, me and Matt have played with countless musicians who have dealt with form in that way. Aaron Deal is somebody who I also became familiar with um, through his work in both the so-called classical and so-called jazz categories, you know, his work in both of those fields. So I already knew that he had an understanding of, you know, playing over extended forms and things like this. And, you know, him, myself, and Matt, all three of us, uh, our experiences and our influences very much come from that, you know, with dealing with these more extended ideas of forms or whatever, everything, I mean, all kinds of ways of dealing with form, whether we're talking about uh, whether we're talking about classical music or we're talking about the blues or we're talking about jazz or we're talking about whatever, whatever the case may be, or even advanced pop music, like say Joni Mitchell's music, for example, and people like that. I mean, we all have a familiarity with these, with these different approaches to form. And so in coming out with the personnel for the recording, like this was what I thought about. Like, how, how do I exercise form having these sort of sensibilities that I tend to execute in my own music. Like, how do I, how do I create something while remaining true to the song and while remaining true to what the song is or what the song is uh, communicating? How do I do that in the most personal, direct way, you know, derived from my own experiences as a composer? So all of these different things kind of tied into each other. And so it led to the uh, idea of, you know, making a record, you know, making a record where, in fact, you know, now we're going to get into another topic about what that record means. I didn't want to do a record where we're going to be spending a bunch of time doing rehearsals and that kind of thing of these arrangements and stuff like that. Like, I didn't want the music to be too comfortable, um, in other words. Um, so we only spent about maybe an hour just going over these roadmaps of some of these songs, you know, um, and the next day we went into the studio and we did the record, you know, and it was, uh, I wanted to see how the three of us would respond naturally, <laughs> you know, like without, you know, knowing about, you know, what the tendencies are for each of us, you know, as, as players or whatever. We never played together before until we hit the studio. And so that was, uh, 
that was something special that I wanted to do was to create something that was truly spontaneous, you know, without having to be in the presence of other people, you know, like just doing it in a recording studio and having, you know, of course, the great Michael Carvin there as a producer and who saw oversaw the proceedings, you know, I mean, and we were all sort of really in awe of what was possible, you know, between the three of us in the studio in terms of what we did with the song forms and things like that and how we truly made a personal expression together, you know, as a trio with these songs. And it, it was just, it was just fantastic, you know, getting to work through this material and, and still, you know, sort of remain true to the, the songs, you know. Yeah, the, the original impulse of those songs. You know, you said this thing about how you brought all your experience as a composer into that particular project. In taking all material written by other composers, you brought in, you know, a certain sensibility from your composition side. Again, I'm, you know, these are categories, but one of the things that I think is so interesting to explore is that here's a record that's made with almost no rehearsal in the space of a day, and it lives in your body of work next to long extended forms of composition. And here we are over a year after it was recorded talking about this as an artistic statement equal to any other artistic statement that you would make. This is essentially an improvised day in the studio. This to me seems like almost the best example of the interplay between improvisation and composition and, you know, how we often see them as very exclusive from one another. But here you are making, a, I think, a, a statement to say, I see them as very related to each other. Very much so. In fact, you know, all of it is composition, really, when you think about it. You know, when it comes to how both Aaron and Matt, you know, make these really intelligent decisions in some of the solo sections of some of these songs or whatever, like the decision making and the thought that goes into that, that is as much thought as one puts into when one creates a piece of music, you know, at a, sitting at a desk somewhere. I mean, to me, it's all the same. And you're totally right in the way that you framed it, where, you you know, while this is a, you know, more or less a quote-unquote improvised sort of recording session, at the same time, there is a very, very high degree of thought and a high degree of uh, feeling full engagement with the songs. I mean, there's also that. I mean, and there's, you know, there's just a high degree of, you know, decision making that we're all sort of doing together, you know, collectively. And um, I've just had, I mean, I had nothing but belief, you know, that these two musicians would be able to really, you know, exercise these song forms in that way. And let me also say that in so many ways, mesmerism is both an affirmation and a departure from the other trio albums that I've done beforehand, namely the recordings Alloy and Verisimilitude, uh, 2014 and 2017, respectively. Alloy, for example, is a recording where about 80% of that music is all written out Mm -hmm. or all composed or whatever. Verisimilitude is kind of similar um, in that maybe, you know, you have about 
50% of that music all thoroughly notated and written out, mm -hmm. and 50% of it was improvised. And here, mesmerism is is the complete, you know, we're dealing with the American songbook and we're finding ways of dealing with that songbook in a way that is most directly related to both of those two recordings. I mentioned those two recordings because in both Alloy and Verisimilitude, where the trio of Corey Smythe, Chris Tordini, and myself, when we would get together and perform these pieces of music or whatever, you know, these these song forms that I've written for those particular albums, you know, for these songs, they were never really quote unquote fixed. Hmm. I mean, there would be that would just be you know, so whatever is notated on the on the pages, that's just one example of what the formal potential of a composition could be. When it came to live performance or whatever, from, from performance to performance, we would play the same composition, but we'd have sections of the composition alternate at other points other than what is notated, you know? So we would have to basically talk all of these roadmaps down before each performance that we would do because it necessitates a kind of, a kind of invention, if you will, where the player has to then get out of their fixated idea of what fixed form is and have the form be a little bit more variable, you know? And so in both Alloy and Verisimilitude, you know, that's just one example of what the forms of those songs are hmm. or whatever, but there are many different ways that we could exercise these songs. Mesmerism is no different. Of course, you have Autumn Leaves and we know it as a 32-bar standard with two sections, but why not think of it as having four different sections or why not think of it as having, you know, however many different sections and then have a solo section that's based on the original chord progression sequence and that kind of thing. Like why, you know, like it's, it's just the same type of sensibility that I have where, you know, you have a fixed form or whatever and you can find another way of working, of working a different form of, for that song or whatever, while still remaining true to what the language of the song is. I think there's another layer of the conversation, which is, you know, asking or interrogating, as academics would say, what songs enter into the canon, into the American songbook and become standards. There are a lot of ways to approach the conversation. One of them is... So many of the songs that the great improvisers used were popular songs at some point. They were written as songs that everybody would know. And so the act of transformation was a radical act because it was taking something that belonged to the sort of the popular space and a very white space, and it was bringing it into a new context. Absolutely. The songs that we're looking at in your project are not coming out of the popular music space of any time, really. These are many songs that were written now by 
great improvising musicians and that right. you're revisiting. Right. So the, the conversation around what constitutes a standard or an, a part of the American songbook is no longer necessarily looking at what's on the radio or on Broadway. Right. It's looking elsewhere also. It's looking within, you know, and I, this is a good opportunity for me to make myself clear because I was asked a similar question along similar lines um, on another interview that I've done. And uh, let me just say that the um, the Great American Songbook does not end with uh, My Favorite Things or something like that from like 1960 or whatever, like it's like, or 1959 rather, like it does not in there. I mean, because there's, there's so many, in fact, why even call it a songbook at all? Why limit it to a particular era? Why limit it to a particular time, right? You know, so these were the questions that I was asking myself, you know, not only when putting together mesmerism, but actually long before that, like when I was participating in jam sessions or whatever, like how come all of these things are called standards and yet you don't go beyond a certain era or something like that? For example, when you talk about the great music of Horace Silver or you talk about the great music of Wayne Shorter or Charles Mingus, you know, these people who have you know, again, speaking of the explosion of form, right? I mean, you you have these incredible works by and, and even Duke Ellington himself, you know, who we covered in Mesmerism and everything. It's like, you know, all of these great musicians have contributed so much to the canon that, you know, it's, there's, there's so much music that was made in the last 62 years that has yet to really be fully considered, you know, um, you know, on a bandstand and a jam session type of situation. You, you know, you have situations where people are still calling so-called jazz standards from the quote-unquote Great American Songbook as defined today by, you know, by a lot of people who have defined it that way for years as being limited to a particular era, to a particular space, you know, in the music. And so what mesmerism and what I hoped to show through this recording is that the Great American Songbook does not end in 1960. The Great American Songbook continues to the present day. And not only is the Great American Songbook limited to so-called jazz expression, this runs all across the board. I mean, you know, I mean, you have many incredible hip-hop artists of today, right? That music should be considered part of the Great American Songbook. You have so-called beat composers I can name MF Doom, I can name Jay Dilla, I can name, I mean, I can name so many special artists, you know, who have contributed to that world. Like, that should be considered in the canon of what is called the Great American Songbook. Or I can name, like, extended compositions by many black composers whose work we don't know. You know, you can consider that a part of that. So really... Why even define it as a great American songbook? Like, why not just take whatever music you want to engage with and deal with it, you know, transform it in a way that you feel is personal to you, as what has happened in so-called jazz for over the past century and even beyond. I'm just doing the same thing that a lot of those folks have done. <laughs> you know, it's, it's no different, really, except, you know, we, we tend to kind of limit the great American songbook and what our thoughts of that is, you know, into one particular sphere of the music. Whereas, you know, like I said, you have too many countless examples of music after 1960 that can very well, if you really wanted to find it as 
you know, as having a great American songbook or whatever, then you got to go beyond 1960. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, for you to be looking at, let's say, the the music of Jay Dilla and then also, you know, extended composition or whatever, you you know, y- what you're revealing is how you think about the world, which is that category is uh, is artificial. But it's interesting because... It's hard for people sometimes to figure out what space they're in, you know, and I know that you also have talked about this question of labeling, and it has to be acknowledged that every time you say the word jazz, you say the word so-called jazz, and I think it's a way of saying that we're not going to accept that label right now, that that's not the label that best serves what what you're doing or the music that you're making. Right. That's, that's right. That's That's correct. Is it a form of gently trying to move the discourse? Like every time you say so-called jazz is the idea that eventually we will find another way that we can speak about this music. Sure. I mean, there are many different ways that people are talking about the music even now. You know what I mean? Like you, you have people like Nicholas Payton who come, who coined the term black American music, which I consider myself a black American musician Yes. or a black American artist, I guess I would say. You know. What I wonder about with that, and I agree... But what I wonder about is, so is Lage Lund a musician of black American music? Yes, he is. Is he a black American musician? Um, if you're saying that in the sense that, you know, the music that he is engaging is black American music, then yes. Then yes. I think that's where it's, it becomes very challenging for people to even know how they should allow themselves to engage in it, if that makes any sense. Right. I mean, I mean, obviously, lineage-wise, yeah. I mean, he's Norwegian. I yeah. mean, obviously, lineage-wise, it wouldn't make sense to, you know, to say that. I don't think uh, being a black American musician is limited to the color of your skin or, or whatever, that kind of thing. I think being a black American musician has to do with the engagement with the music that originated from the black American experience. I guess, uh, to put it in those terms, or to hopefully define it succinctly, in that way correctly, that would be a more accurate way I would put it, you know, for Lage. Thank you. you know. Thank you for that. The last track on this, on Mesmerism, is a blues, and you just settle into the shuffle. I mean, you know, you close the record with one of the great American rhythms, you know, you, you play the blues. And it got me thinking about, you know, swing and the shuffle beat and that rhythm in general, and what the decision was to do that. This is just a demonstration of where I come from. You know, I've been doing this my whole life, and um, I've come up playing standards, and I, you know, so-called standards or whatever. I, I've come through playing that kind of stuff, you know, and playing so-called blues type of music, you know, that kind of, I mean, you know, like playing this type of stuff or whatever. I've come through Newark, you know, doing all of that stuff. And so for me, this is just a reflection of where I came from. You know, and uh, why I chose to do it is because, you know, R.E.M. Blues happens to be um, a composition that I really love dearly. And it was something that Duke actually had composed uh, for the Money Jungle record or whatever, something that he composed specifically for that record for those players or whatever, which in a way speaks to how mesmerism sort of came about, you know, going back to that. You know, where, you know, these tunes were specifically picked out for these musicians and for this particular occasion, you know, we came up with these arrangements for this particular occasion. The point being that for me, it's again, you know, it's nothing unusual is that, you know, it's just representing where I come from, you know, and that's that's all it is. I want to just close by talking about the concerts that you're going to be doing at the Armory in September with uh, Monochromatic Light. Um because 
that is a very different kind of conversation, I think, or a different experience from the one that we've been talking about here. I mean, maybe you see them as kind of all related, but it puts you in a slightly different function. It's you as composer. It's you in conversation and dialogue with a a couple of pieces that had already been created 50 years ago. I haven't heard the piece. I've read a great review of it, of course, in The New Yorker, but can you just talk about the experience of, of writing that piece and how you think about going into these concerts in September? Well, that piece in particular is dealing with a lot of subjects. First of all, the Rothko Chapel itself, which is uh, really influential for me uh, for many reasons that would go beyond the scope of the interview time that we have today. But um, the influence of the chapel and what it represents in terms of it being a space for a meditation and for you know, becoming one with yourself and becoming one with the black panels that are all in that space and that kind of thing and seeing it transform over a long period of time. So that's one inspiration. Another level of inspiration, of course, is Morton Feldman's composition of the same name titled Rothko Chapel. Uh, Morton Feldman is a tremendous, if not, pro- if, if not possibly the biggest influence for me as a composer. Uh, right next to people like Bill Dixon, Anthony Braxton, and um, so many other other composers I can name uh, who have done really important work for me in that regard. So that composition is in conversation with those composers in particular, along with Feldman. The piece is also in conversation with trauma. Morton Feldman's Rothko Chapel composition, for example, deals with ancestral trauma and, and t- you know, on, on some level, uh, where at the very end of the piece, there's like a Hebraic melody that is stated at the very end of that composition, very beautiful melody that he had written, I think when he was around 16 years old or something like that, quasi-Hebraic, I should say, in, in his terms. Um, in much the same way that his music deals with you know, ancestral trauma or whatever to that degree, so does monochromatic light afterlife as well, uh, dealing with more specifically black ancestral trauma uh, through the interpolation of the spiritual, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Mm. The entire composition, you know, in some ways has sometimes I feel like a motherless child, like always sort of abstracted or playing in the background or whatever as the composition is happening. So... That piece, too, is in conversation uh, with black trauma and black grief. Rothko's paintings, getting back to Mark Rothko, his art was never about being, quote-unquote, beautiful to the viewer or being, you know, something that you can just externally look at and not see any kind of intrinsic value in whatever feelings he was trying to convey on the part of the viewer. There is a lot of grief that's expressed there, you know, particularly in those black paintings, um, the 14 black paintings that surround the chapel. I mean, there is a lot of that going on there. The idea was not to create a beautiful canvas for a viewer to look at. Like, this goes beyond the idea of trying to paint something that looks nice or something like that or something that's decorative. Like, it's not really about that. It was really about expressing um, these really human emotions uh, that one feels or whatever. Sometimes not the most happy, not super happy emotions all the time or whatever. But then, you know, that speaks to who Mark Rothko was or whatever, was somebody who was interested in conveying all of these other human emotions or whatever that we tend to not really dig deep for. So monochromatic light seeks to kind of do just that through being in conversation with these composers, including Feldman, and in conversation with the black spirituals. 
and uh, putting all of that in context uh, with one another in a conversation with one another. When I read about it, I have to say that as a Jewish American man, which is what I am, my family's been here long enough that it's easy to lose touch with our own ancestral trauma. I mean, it's stories that we tell ourselves, but we've become so, so many of us integrated into secular American life that I was very touched when I understood how you connected with Feldman's ancestral trauma. And you drew a line to your own ancestral trauma through seeing his experience. And also understanding that at his time when he was operating in the classical music space in the 20th century, he was an outsider, maybe in a similar way to the way that you felt when you entered that space. But it was very meaningful to me when I learned that because it, it reframed my own family legacy, if that makes any sense. And, and it allowed me to see myself a little differently through your eyes. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. And um, this is yet another example of how Black American music and Jewish music, mainly Jewish music made in America, how these things really intersect in a huge way. We've seen so many examples of that, you know, even as far back as the 1920s or 1930s, when you see all of these different connections of both of these musics interacting with one another. Yes, you might see it, you know, to some degree in a superficial way, you know, during the swing era or whatever, you would find many examples of that during the swing era. But also when you when you look deep beyond the surface of what's going on in those music, for example, like, because I spent a lot of time listening to cantorial music, a lot of cantorial works. And I felt the connection listening to a lot of the great cantors or whatever of the early 20th century, you know, listening beyond the liturgical side of, you know, whatever it is that they're singing about, just the amount of power and the sheer energy that comes through the loudspeaker whenever I'm listening to these golden age cantors of the early 20th century, you know, listening to that, and then directly connecting that to, you know, all kinds of black music that I've listened to and everything. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I just saw that, I felt a connection there, you know, whatever I would listen to that kind of music, you know, listening to the singers or whatever of that time or whatever, and just seeing how both, you know, interestingly enough, while one is dealing more or less with liturgical elements, the other is dealing with more sort of real life experiences, like life experiences, mm -hmm. things like that or whatever, black singers or whatever mm -hmm. during that time. I mean, dealing with a lot of that stuff. But the sheer power and the sheer emotion and everything that you know that one gets out of listening to these recordings is exactly the same for me when I experienced that music and so to me it was very easy for me to draw these connections when one one's dealing with ancestral trauma you know and kind of linking the two ways in which that's kind of been dealt with do you think that you process strong emotions more acutely than other people and that that helps you in your work Perhaps, yeah. And it's also probably part of the reason why for a long time I'd like to sit with something until I begin to write a note of music about it. For the Rothko Chapel piece, I mean, you know, I wasn't going to write a note of music until I sat in that chapel myself and experienced what it would be like to sit in that space for numerous hours and watching those paintings transform or whatever as the day passes. Nor was I going to proceed with writing a note of music until I really sat with the Morton Feldman composition of the same name, because I've heard that composition numerous times before, but for this occasion, I wanted to listen again and to really see the connection. 
mm-hmm. between what we're dealing with now and the 21st century. And this is the other thing. Like I like I wanted to concentrate not only on you know the ancestral trauma that I've experienced, you know, as a black man or whatever, as African Americans or black people experience or whatever, but I'm dealing with what is happening now. You know, like just with regards to all of these the, the shootings of unarmed blacks and that kind of stuff or whatever. And just seeing a lot of the perils that we, as a collective, we all experience or whatever. Like, I'm also dealing with that, in addition to, I mean, the ancestral stuff or whatever. So in listening to the Feldman, I said, okay, so here he is dealing with ancestral trauma and this kind of thing or whatever. I, too, am dealing with that. But how do we put that in today's world? How, how does that exist in 2020, 2021? How would that exist musically? Like, how how do we go beyond? I don't want to say how do we go beyond where Feldman has gone because it makes it sound a certain way. But how do we deal with this stuff currently in the moment? You know, so that's that's really what I was after. It's a strange pivot, but I'm going to close by asking you this. You are very serious about your work. You're clearly very thoughtful. You're very patient. And you're also somebody who is willing to sit in something and your music sits also your your music requires a certain kind of patience and, and concentration often you know you ask that of people i heard though that you also love comedy you know i mean i see on your instagram that you're you know you like goofy stuff and ridiculous oh, yes. stuff you know <laughs> It is a weird tension, but I love it. I love that we went there. <laughs> Let's close there, man. You know, I yeah. mean, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that people would assume, as I would, if I hadn't been given that little clue, that, you know, that it's just real serious all the time because these are serious things. But, you know, you've got to see the light also, you know. you got, you got to see the, the ridiculousness of life sometimes, too. Yeah, it's another form of self-care. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know... I've been a long, long time fan of uh, stand-up comedy, you know, and I have a lot of people whose work I really love and that has also influenced me um, in a lot of ways to work in the way that I did, you know. And strangely enough, a lot of the a lot of the comedians whose work I'm into, they've also had to face the same kind of challenges, you know, that I've had to face, you know, where they felt a little bit inhibited you know, in their expression and the way that they wanted to express themselves. And finally, at a certain point, they just came out and said what they said and they did the art that they did. And that was some of the greatest art that they've ever made or whatever. I'm talking specifically about Richard Pryor as a a prime example of that. Where we're talking about, uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking also about George Carlin. I'm thinking about, you know, a lot of my favorite uh, sort of stand-up comedians or the classics, you know, I'm thinking about the classics and, you know, a lot of what those people went through, you know, with their, with regards to the expression and for how a long time, for a long time they've been censored from saying everything that they really wanted to say about their lives or whatever. And they, they would talk about, you know, maybe less, maybe, maybe less so in the case of George Carlin, but speaking specifically of Rich Pryor, how he would take his life experiences and really <laughs> like turn it into gold and really make it funny for people to really to really laugh at and to really sort of, you know, understand that, yes, this does come from a visceral life experience, but at the same time, this is truly something that unifies us, you know, in a lot of ways or whatever. So in listening to his work, for example, like, I mean, we can talk about that. I mean, his work has influenced me to kind of 
do the work that I'm doing, you know, in a lot of ways. So, again, you know, stand-up comedy is also very, very much influential to me. And uh, just seeing the, you know, ex like like what you said, the ridiculousness of life or whatever, you know, it just, uh, we, we can't, we, we, we can't, can't not have a laugh, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because it's easier to understand it when you hear it through Richard Pryor's lens or, or whatever. It's like, here's your life experience and here is how it influences your work because you're speaking to us. But the same thing happens in music. I mean, what you described throughout this conversation was how life experience is then funneled through, you know, your work. And yes. it, it informs the work that you make. It's just maybe people don't always know it because it's not being spoken so clearly. Yes. With words. And, and people need to remind themselves of that, you know, too, that yeah. the life experience is as, is as important as the sounds that you're making, you know. Dr. Tyshawn, sorry, thank you for making these sounds with me today and having this conversation. Definitely. My pleasure, Leo, of course. There he was, my friends, the great Tyshawn Sori. I'll be back in your headspace again before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.